Hi. We're really enjoying these fun, listener-created versions of our opening. But just to make sure that we've covered our butts, please also listen to the more serious version of our disclaimer message that's at the very end of this podcast. We really don't want to get sued. Thanks. Hey, the cats on this podcast represent no one and are here strictly on their own behalf and behest, baby, yes. Now dig, if it sounds like they're talking to you about how to fly your airplane, you got to keep in mind that these dudes are speaking purely from their own headspace. You got to interpret their knowledge and their wisdom as being completely general, baby. When it's you in the left seat, you got to consider your situation, remember your training, and fly your aircraft. Can you dig it? <laughs> Will Hawkins sent me this video. He sent it actually a little while ago, and it's kind of gotten lost in all the craziness of the last few weeks. But uh, did yeah, you guys see Will this? and I are missing each other. Yeah? We... we He's he. I uh, just started that video, and of course, I get the audio at the same time. Um, yeah, he and I've been trying to uh, IM each other and and or call each other all week, and keep missing each other, and yada yada yada. But uh, yeah, I, well, I think by I told the time you. by the time Will and or our, the rest of our audience hears this, Will and I will have spoken. Okay. Well, that's that's very intriguing. We'll, we'll want to hear more about that later on. But Will Will sent sent us this uh, video, which is kind of fun. Um, it's a YouTube video of uh, presumably from some sort of fly-in or air show or something, where a uh, what is it? A B twenty-five. First, it does a uh, sort of a low pass, which is fun, uh, but then it does. All right, so here's the deal. We've all heard of doing like flower bombing. You know, where you have a fly fly-in where they do sort of precision flying, where you have a bag, a sack, you know, paper sack full of flour, and you fly over the field and try and drop it onto an X and the closest to the X wins a prize. Then uh, a few months ago, uh, I was intrigued by the idea that in downtown Sanford, Maine, they were doing pumpkin bombing, where they were doing these bombing runs on a pond in the middle of downtown and trying to drop pumpkins into the pond. Well, now Will has shown us a video of a B-25 doing a, lo- a flyby over this fly-in, over this grass field, where he drops a whole bunch of pumpkins all at the same time. Sort of a, a pumpkin cluster bomb. Sat- saturation bombing. Saturation bombing, that's right. And uh, over the uh, over the runway. It's kind of kind of cool. It's a very brief little bit of a video. There's actually, the video is longer. I don't, there's another flyby or another angle, but you can't quite see the pumpkins. But the first one is the best, and it's, it's kind of cool. And they're all going ooh and ah, and I can't blame them, because I think I probably would have thought that was kind of cool too oh yeah so uh well just a b-25 making passes was yeah that alone cool. you're right but uh, but you know dropping stuff out of airplanes i don't know i you know part of me says "Ooh, irresponsible and part of me says "Ooh, cool well, <laughs> kind of depends ever, on have, what you're dropping huh? yeah I know. well i was gonna say there's uh i've been to more than a couple of uh little formalized uh airport contests where they had spot landing, flower bomb drops, right? You know where you know it was all cool and everybody was on board, and uh, the person dropping the flower bomb was not the person flying the airplane. Oh yeah, that would be okay. Yeah, 
You know, that's like, oh, you are kidding me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, back in the old wild and woolly days of ultralight flying, we had uh, we had some contests like that where we dropped uh, flower bombs and sundry pieces of uh, types of fruit, uh, which was really easy for us because there was no cabin and no fuselage, just, uh, you know, a, 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 a collection of aluminum tubes and wires and a, a, a seat off of a cheap office chair yeah you just have a lap full of oranges and you just kind of like drop one over to the side every now and exactly then. tomatoes were good tomatoes oh yeah that would be good wouldn't it yeah okay but the flower bombs were best because they actually gave you a a white puff that showed where your uh where your flower bomb had uh, had burst yeah. so that was that was a lot of fun yeah we dropped things out of uh, uh, uh an airplane intentionally jeb how about you have you ever participated in any of these kind of contests i've or? never have the um uh, residents here at uh, at the residential airport I moved to uh, have a spot landing contest twice a year. Uh, they don't do you know flower bombing or anything like that. I don't guess. I- I'm told that the the helicopter guys cheat. <laughs> <laughs> Some might describe their flying that way. Yeah, that's cheating. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like it's like. But uh, I think the only thing I've ever dumped out of an airplane. Um, was a uh, six sack. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Over over a non populated area. I hope, I hope it was. <laughs> I, <laughs> I sincerely hope it was. <laughs> we we had that story a while back about the guy's pro- whose propeller d- departed the aircraft, and he was searching for it, and eventually found it. You've never had any pieces parts leave the airplane, have you? <sighs> Oh, not that I recall. Yeah, not that you're aware of. <laughs> um, no, I generally try to leave. I try to arrive back on the ground with all the parts I took aloft. Now here, here we uh, go. This is a this is a, a FAR quiz of the week. Um, what's the rule about dropping things out of an airplane? Do we know? It's not, um, it's not totally forbidden, that, right? I mean, it's, it's like you, it, as long as you don't change your persons or property on the ground, uh, you can do that. Uh-huh. And I would I would speculate that the um, generic item most dropped from an airplane are um, crematorium ashes. Ah, yeah. yes. Okay. Which is a, a topic, a constant, I won't say constant, it's perennial topic for discussion on various, uh, um, in various forums um, because you have to be very careful depending on the type of airplane you're, you're using. <laughs> Because the ashes, if you, if you got a bag of ashes and like you know uh, you got your dear sweet departed great grandmother in a plastic bag or a paper bag or something like that, yeah, and you pop open the window, they're going to come right back in the cabin. Yeah, man, they're going to make sorry. a big I mess. Laugh. No, I, it, it, it is. You know, that's I mean that's almost the right reaction if it wasn't you know involving. Uh, you know, human remains. So, is there a um, trick to this? How do you do it so that they? Yeah, co- they- the trick to this. You basically, you you uh, um, you want to get a, like a hose, like a um, vacuum cleaner hose or something like that. It's like the cat <clears> thing, and 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 kind of slink slink the hose out the window uh-huh. so that it's well aft. Yeah. Okay. And then it, it creates a vacuum, uh, and then you just kind of. Uh, suck the the um, the ashes out of the bag. Right now, th- the other problem here, yeah, is a- human crematorium ashes are exceedingly abrasive. Yeah. Okay. So if you know you're doing this and the hose 
is kind of aimed at the tail, you're going to sandblast you the tail of the airplane. Yeah, you can wind up with a bare spot. You can. Even so, for a brief little uh, little uh, even 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 uh, um, a really? small amount of ashes. Let's let's leave it at that. Hmm. Um, they're they're very abrasive. So the, the the people who do this and and there are people who do this um, regularly professionally. Shall we professionally, say yeah professionally? Uh, they have you know rigged the airplane so that uh, a there is a vacuum hose of some kind. B it exits like you know beneath the belly yeah um of the airplane and the ashes are in fact spread over the location that uh everybody wants them to be spread it's uh you know it's an interesting topic i guess uh and eventually if if people stay with this for a while stay with this aviation thing as it were for a while eventually someone will ask them to dump some ashes someplace hmm. um well, years ago uh i did not do the jumping but i was part of a uh, a group flight from which one of the craft dumped the ashes and in that case they used a uh, little baggie on a string and let uh-huh. go of the baggie so that as it went slipstreaming by it untied itself as it got behind right. the aircraft mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, right. and and then a month later we were asked to do it again and this time uh, they just put it in a, a, a very it wasn't the entirety of the deceased's remains mm-hmm. uh, it was a split decision they wanted some of it one place and some of it someplace else and uh, that just went out the the uh, the the uh, aircraft in a very thin uh, biodegradable uh-huh. bag so that it would yeah. burst when it hit the ground. Yeah. Uh, now, now the Dave, other thing, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the other thing here too is that uh, this can be very dangerous. In what way? Uh, yeah. um, there, there was an accident report I came across. It's been uh, you know a handful of years now. Uh, I think it was an A thirty six Bonanza. Um, was witnesses on the ground you know saw this airplane fly over saw it flying very slowly and somewhat erratically and saw a a puff of smoke or puff of dust um emanate from the airplane and then the airplane crashed Mm. because the pilot lost control of it you know whether you know they got the cloud of ashes in the cabin that distracted him he was too slow and stall stall spun um whatever it was um you know, boys and girls, you still have to fly the airplane, no matter how solemn the occasion is. Yeah. Well, that's why on the flower bomb competition things that we did that weren't ultralight oriented, uh, uh-huh. you know, it was a two-man crew. Right. One flew right. the airplane, the other dropped the bomb. and It was, of course, a, a training bomb drop mission, right? It was. Well, everybody agreed to it. It was no hazard to anybody. The target was clearly identified. It was a That's an a ultralight spot. rules violation joke, but okay. Oh, a, oh, that one. Oh, uh, well, that. <laughs> it was a you know, training. I didn't, put, get it. I didn't get it either. We just put a big orange Frisbee on the field for that one. And, now, David, uh, I happen to know that you you have also dropped another significant object out of airplanes in the past. And and that would be yourself. You used to when you decided. Uh, I did. I did. Uh, I did make ten parachute jumps, right. uh, seven static lines, three free falls. Now I have a question uh, for you about this. This is something I've always been curious about, and I know that I'm never ever going to learn, you know, personally how this works. 
but it's it, it's always made me nervous the idea that when you so I'm picturing like a like a DC three or something, and you kind of dive out the side door, and how dangerous is it that you might strike the tail? The the my last three jumps, the free falls, were all out of a C forty seven. Okay. Uh, Zephyr Hill, Florida. Basically a DC-3 issue. Basically a DC-3. And uh, the trick was that you just kind of – you could do it one of two ways. You could just step out the door and gravity and slipstream would carry you down and underneath the tail. Uh, Or if you were interested in getting into what they call a stable spread more quickly, you kind of flung yourself from the door frame like you were trying to hit the trailing edge of the wing. Mm-hmm. And it did that head first, and you went down and 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 belly first very quickly, and uh, got that stable position much more rapidly. Uh, but uh, you know, short of somebody getting tangled up and not detaching from the static line, uh, hitting the tail didn't happen. Gravity works faster than that. Really interesting. Well, remember, Jeff, when you go out the door, you're going at the same velocity as the aircraft. And then you start to decelerate in horizontal speed as you fall. Yeah, I, I know. It just always seemed weird, though. Jeb, is there, have there been some accident situations? Yeah, this there was. Um, this was not a C-47 slash DC-3. This was a Cessna Caravan. Um, I, um, uh, a friend of mine, hangar, hangar neighbor at Venice, uh, had uh, stopped by uh, a few days earlier, or, or, or actually a couple of weeks ago, I was at the hangar, and just casually mentioned he was out flying that day. This is a weekend day, Saturday or Sunday. And he overheard on one of the frequencies a jump plane pilot saying that he had possibly a damaged empennage. And uh, it was a windy, gusty day here, and the winds weren't favorable for his home uh, landing zone, apparently. So he was diverting somewhere. and I don't know. He, he wasn't talking to ATC. I think it was plane-to-plane chatter. But uh, um, came across the accident report. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, and it was a caravan out of Hollywood, Florida. Yeah. Um, and he had, I don't know, X number of, of jumpers on board. Um, he slowed to 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 uh, uh, thirteen thousand feet or something thirteen five, he, he slowed to uh, to drop speed and uh, he's hit the green light and and uh, then he felt the airplane shudder, and one of the, the jumpers came up to the cab to the cockpit and said, hey, you know, uh, uh, one of the one of the jumpers just you know, like hit the tail, um, mm-hmm. and the, the caravan landed successfully. What happened, according to the NTSB report, is that uh, there was a jumper in the door, and uh, somehow his reserve chute deployed, mm. yeah. yanking him out of the airplane. And uh, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the NTSB report indicated, I won't say said, but it did indicate that the jumper himself hit, um, I, I would presume, the horizontal stabilizer. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing in the NTSB report about the condition of the jumper. That had to hurt. That had to have hurt. I believe. Remember the story a few years back when Sean Tucker had to uh, had to leave his. Uh, he was practicing aerobatics down in the Salinas area, and he had a problem, and he had to jump. And uh, I remember. I seem to remember hearing the story that someone, some listener of ours, will call it. Will send us an email and tell us this whole story, but. Uh, he first of all had a hard time getting out of the airplane, 
And then when he did get out, I think I read that he kind of he he kind of lightly struck the the empennage as he went out. And uh, so, anyways, well, well, yeah, a lot I think of in his situation, on... yeah, you know, you know the details, Jeb. Well, no, I don't know the details of, of Sean Sean's uh, uh, specific circumstance, but you know, a, a lot of that can depend on the attitude of the airplane, the trajectory yeah. of the airplane. Um, you know, was he inverted? What was he coming out sideways? What was that deal? And um, um, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah. Um, and there have been episodes, you know, in World War II, for example, where someone was bailing out and got hit by the airplane that they're trying to get out of. Yeah. Um, things like that. But uh, it's rare, uh, and and generally it means someone is screwed up. It's not um, certainly not standard operating procedure for someone well, to hit the tail of an airplane when they jump out of it. One of the things that you do when you're in the airplane, whether you're on a static line or going out free fall, is, is uh, you know, protect – the handle for the right. reserve, right? Because if that puppy deploys inside the airplane, uh, gets sucked out by the uh, the air pressure, uh, you're going with it, come hell or high water. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there, there have been instances yeah. of people going part way through the fuselage on their way out behind the parachute, hmm. uh, doing damage to the airplane and damage to themselves in the process. That's gotta so, hurt. You know, yeah. Oh man, it's gotta hurt. That's gotta uh, stay. Anyways, well, all, all told, the the lesson here is be careful when you're throwing things out of airplanes because uh, yeah, whether all, it's yourself or pumpkins, it's, there's all sorts of things that can go right. wrong. Hey, welcome, folks. There, to episode. There's a reason they have doors, and there's a reason we close the doors. That's right. And windows. You don't open those windows, you know, in flight. Don't you open know? those windows. Welcome, folks, to episode 116 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Friday afternoon, January 9th, 2009. Last week when I last week when yeah. I gave the date, I said January whatever it was, January 1st, 2008, and then I said Happy New Year. So I was a little confused. January 9, 2009. He was a little hungover. Yeah, yeah. Let me say, actually, I wish I could claim I was, but it was a, it was a relatively uh, mellow uh, Chris, or Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve. Let me say hi oh. to my friends here in the hangar. Uh, one of those voices out there is Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing quite nicely. It's Thank spring there nicely. in Wichita, right? It's spring in January. Well, it was spring in January today, but we got a front coming through. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the last hour, the temperatures dropped about 15, 18 degrees. And we'll probably continue to drop through the day so that uh, – through the night, I should say, so that – Today's high in the low 50s will be nothing but a fond memory when tomorrow's high is the low 30s. Yeah, exactly. And also here in the hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida, where it's always spring. I was going to say, it's it's uh, 50. I, I, I don't think we've had 50 this winter yet. <laughs> Screw here. you, Burnside. <laughs> I, <laughs> don't sugarcoat it, Hodge. Just give it to me <laughs> I've tried to be very good. So, and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm talking to you. I'm here in Berkeley, California. For this is we've done three podcasts. My my friend who I'm staying with here, I you know I said I'm going to do this thing. He says he says you're doing it again. You're doing another podcast. This is the third podcast we've done in two in three or two weeks since I've been here. But uh, I I've been trying really hard to be be nice to all my friends back in New England and not gloat about the fact that uh, that it's so much nicer here than it is back in New England. Um, but. Uh, I'm, I'm going home soon and uh, going to get to uh, pay my dues as a New Englander. Anyways, 
Um, as well you should, Ollie. <laughs> hey, so David, you, uh, you, you called our attention to a, uh, some sort of survey, training survey, regarding Microsoft Flight Simulator. There's a uh, Middle Tennessee University Aerospace Department folks are interested in your experiences with the Microsoft Flight Simulator software package in regards to your training. And they've asked for input from pilots, uh, regardless of whether you actually used MS Flight Simulator for your training. Uh, they're interested in instrument pilots in particular. Uh, we'll have a link with the show notes. Uh, I went through the survey. It took a whole whopping, I don't know, five or six minutes to, to, uh, to complete. Uh, nothing to it. And uh, definitely something that I, I, I think all of us out there that are instrument pilots that have five minutes to kill, click on the link, help these folks out. Uh, it may help advance the cause of, uh, of uh, instrument training and maybe even help advance the cause of uh, training private pilots initial, uh, depending on the experiences that this, the, that this the is folks really easy. gather. This, this is real easy. I'm, I'm going through it now. And, you know, ask you, first question is, in what year did you first earn your FAA instrument rating? And uh, I earned my wow, instrument it, rating. Did, did, I, I earned does my it instrument go back ra- far enough for you? <laughs> yeah, I earned my instrument rating before IBM came out with the PC, before Microsoft even came out with MS-DOS, <laughs> and before they came out with Microsoft Flight Simulator. So, there you go. Uh, there you go. So this is real easy to go through. There you go. So, but here's my question for you guys, um, both of you being enthusiastic instrument pilots. Do do you think that um, that that Microsoft Flight Simulator or X Plane or these computer-based flight simulator programs are at all useful as training tools? For the answer for, is yes. For real pilots, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, in what um, way? What makes them useful? Procedures. Absolutely. Um, that, that's the, the word. Sequence, the sequence of events that, that has to happen for a successful approach, whether it's whether it's an ILS or a GPS or an NDB or whatever, um, it, it's called a procedure for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is a set number of things that need to happen in a specific order. And you need to do them well, and you need to do the, some of them simultaneously. Um, and and you need to configure the panel. You need to configure your brain. You need to configure the airplane. And um, it doesn't really matter, you know, where the controls are. If they're on an instrument panel, you know, in a physical airplane on an instrument panel in a, sim, in a, a mechanical simulator or uh, um, images that you click on a, on a computer screen, you still need to configure, you still need to get your brain wrapped around the idea of doing certain things at a certain time and in a certain sequence to conduct successful instrument approaches or, for that matter, um, any instrument uh, uh, operation, whether it's a, an approach, departure, an arrival, just sometimes just straight and level, just climbs and descends. That's right. Flying um, a SID or a star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the the real benefit here, as Jeb has so graphically pointed out, is, is, is you get your brain wired to it, but you also get your brain wired into the fact that you're doing this all by reference to, to little dials and needles uh, and indicators on the instrument panel. 
Uh, you do this in the comfort of your home where you can't see outside. And there's nothing to see outside. You don't burn any gas. Mm-hmm. But you very quickly get wired into the step A, step B, uh, and that simultaneous stuff. Sometimes it's all, you know, knees and elbows, wrists and hands doing four or five different things at once smoothly. And right. it all comes together with the little needles centering up where they're supposed to. Does uh, So it's good so, practice when you're alone oh, at home. Is any of this in any way, I don't know, loggable? Or? Well, let's, let's back up a second. Um, one of the things that um, it, doing anything like this, whether it's at home or at the office or, uh, or anything, any place else, whether it's on Microsoft Flight Simulator or... Uh, sitting around, you know, listening to a podcast or or literally physically hangar flying is discipline. Uh, you can play with Microsoft Flight Sim uh, for a year, and you'll still be a lousy instrument pilot unless you exercise the discipline necessary to actually try to to get some training out of the out of the process. Um, so you you have to, for example, say, all right, I'm going to go. Uh, perfect um, approaches into uh, podunk. So you load up uh, flight sim, you load up uh, podunk, you slew it around to the to your you know ten miles south of the final approach fix for that ILS, and you get yourself wired into this. You're not sitting at your desk. You're in an airplane, and you have to exercise some discipline here to uh, not only do things as you th- you would be doing them in the airplane, but you have to grade yourself appropriately and fairly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not, you know, um, it's not a substitute for doing yeah. it in the airplane. It's definitely not the equivalent of a level C or level D simulator. No. Uh, and a level it's, C or level D simulator is not really a substitute for the airplane, although the LFAA will allow it to be. Uh, you know, you can do type ratings what, in a sim and, and having never flown the airplane. What, what are the Level. attributes of these simulator levels that you just talked about? What makes oh, them better? Boy, how to start this. Uh, well, le- level D is the full motion, which is like the little room on hydraulic right. struts. Okay. Uh, well, so, and, so is level C. Okay. Uh, but uh, there's differences in, in detail and, and uh, realism of the uh, – of the motion of the platform, okay. how much detail and day or night, how much weather they can throw in. Uh, people were getting type ratings without having flown the airplane in level C uh, simulators, uh, but they were still having to practice some emergency stuff in the airplane yeah, or right. some odd procedures. Level D is pretty much, you know, they, Gemini, they can do yeah. just about everything that the airplane can do without right. burning any gas. Right, right. So now, so that's for yeah, instrument training. But, but, uh, okay, Jack, ahead, you had asked, you had asked, um, I forget the question you were asking, I, and I, I, I wanted I think, to answer. I don't know. I was asking whether any of it's loggable, but uh, it, it, well, uh, is, is flight sim, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator, loggable? The answer is quick. Answer is no. No, um, because you don't have uh, some required equipment uh, that the FAA wants you to use. Uh, before the software is considered to be what they call a personal computer-based uh, aviation, aviation training, training device, device. right? DCATD. DCATD. Yeah. 
there's a as as the FAA is fond of doing. There's an AC out on this, an advisory circular out on this. I'm sure it's a 61 dash something. Um, but basically, um, not only do you have to have uh, a device. Uh, that complies with the PCATD standard, you also have to do this under the auspices of an instructor before it to be loggable. So you can't just sit there in your in your uh, uh, in your basement uh, with a joystick. <laughs> there's a there's a picture. Um, you can't just sit there in your in your ba- in your basement with your joystick and and log it. Okay, uh, how's that? You can log it, but it may not count towards anything. I, um, you log and, it, and but, you uh, can actually. You, and PCATDs can be used to log a considerable amount of time towards your instrument. Yeah, yeah but okay. you still have to have. Um, you, I believe you still have to have an instructor overseeing the process. Oh yeah, no, I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying yeah. that you can save yourself a considerable amount of of fuel. And airplane rental time if you have access to an instructor in a PCATD. Yeah, and and you can save yourself a lot of time, effort, fuel, and everything else if you make a dedicated effort to learn flight simulator and learn, you know, so much of of the instrument training process. Guys, by the time you're ready for the instrument ready, you already know how to fly the airplane. God, I hope. Yeah. And and uh, uh, after the first you know five or ten hours, you can keep the thing upright without really looking outside. And the rest of the time is spent learning the procedures and, and trying to do all this while patting your stomach and and rubbing your stomach and patting your head and jumping up and down. Right. And um, over and over and over and over. And over, and over, and over. Uh, I did mine so. in 14 days in the check ride on the 16th day, and it's the closest I've ever come to being. Just oversaturated and sick of bloody flying. <laughs> oh yeah, well, there you go. One more question about this before we move on. Um, so, all right, I'm sold. It's good for instrument training. Is there any value to these simulators to a primary student? Sure. Oh, sure. Same, same, same basic uh, uh, reasons. Although you won't have the granularity, uh, for lack of a better term, I don't think <laughs> that uh, uh, you would in the in the uh, in the instrument environment. Um, because um, the primary student is is you know kind of sort of hanging on for dear life, mm-hmm. uh, he he or she um, uh, is is assaulted. Their senses are literally assaulted with uh, uh, so much. You know, there's 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 the noise, there's the motion, there's the light, um, um, there's the smell even mm-hmm. uh, yeah. of of what it what what goes on and when you're flying a light airplane. Um, <clears throat> You don't get any of that. You don't. You certainly don't get the seat of the pants uh, either uh, that that uh, you would in an airplane from Microsoft Flight Simulator. There, so, there's equipment now that's bringing some of the seat of the pants to the home market. Uh, motion platforms that use uh, jack screw drives, electric drives, uh-huh. uh, seats with six axes of motion uh, that are becoming more and more affordable. That work with you know. Uh, Microsoft Flight Sim and what was the other one? X-Plane. X-Plane, X-Plane. is a popular one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. some more advanced programs. Again, you know, they're not PCATD compliant. But it sounds like fun. Circular. But uh, with a widescreen TV, high def, uh, yeah. put yourself some blinders on. Uh, there are even small wraparound screens coming that work with projection TVs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's getting to the point where somebody with a good-sized rec room 
in ten or twelve grand uh, could have themselves uh, quite a quite a, a little flight simulator system in there, and then you throw in something like a, a World War One uh, Sopwith Camel fighter or Fokker triplane or something uh, you know more World War Two oriented, and you can have yourself a hell of a good time and uh, kind of stimulate the the flight senses mm-hmm. to the to the point where no, it's not the same as currency, but uh, it's close enough that. You you won't feel quite yeah. as lost when you step back in the cockpit after some time off. Well, you know, one 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 thing that flight simulators can help you with, and even just the basic, uh, not, well short of a PCATD, uh, things like ground reference maneuvers. Yeah. Um, you're you know, as long as you can uh, quickly, um, or maybe not even even quickly, but you know, as long as you can you can utilize the flight simulator to look out the window and look at a, um, a spot on the virtual ground. And as you try to circle this spot on the virtual ground, figure out what happens when you pitch down and you pitch up and you shallow out the bank and you steepen the bank and what happens relative to the point on the ground. That kind of, of, uh, of training on a, on a flight simulator could save you a lot of time in the cockpit. That's pretty sure interesting. Can. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Jeb, Moving I know, along. I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say that. Uh, <laughs> I needed a drink. Uh, you're drinking on your own tonight, all right? Uh, Jeb, you have in your airplane a uh, a Garmin GPS. I believe it's, what, a 396? I have a 396 uh, portable and a 530. Okay. And at least one of these, as I recall, uh, gets weather from well, satellite radio. Is that true? Three, the, the 396, yeah. And um, is it from XM? Is that how it works? It is. It uh, is. I was reading, you know, searching around for stories and came across something about how, you know, XM is now working on Garmin's once again. The, this has been a, a Charlie Foxtrot to the max. <laughs> yeah. What happened? Uh, for those, and I, fortunately for me, I, I haven't been out flying. Uh, here in the last few days, um, basically, I, and I'm I'm guessing it was like you know uh, the stroke of uh, midnight uh, ringing in the new year. Uh, something occurred uh, in the XM uh, uh, universe um, that prevented them from transmitting data to certain Garmin receivers. Garmin branded receivers. Um, despite all of the accounting being up to snuff, and despite the the data going to satellites, and despite uh, some other Garmin receivers of the same model um, um, being able to receive the data, um, <clears throat> I don't know everything there is to know about this. I've I've had some. Uh, distractions here this week, work-related distractions, so I haven't really had a chance to, to dive into this. But it basically comes down to um, anyone with a Garmin product uh, eligible to receive XM weather and who did not um, also subscribe on that same unit to XM's audio programming uh, stood a very, very good chance of losing their XM weather data link mm-hmm. over the last several days. Um, a lot of this apparently, apparently, and I have to put 
put all this in quotes and with caveats and and uh, you know Garmin or XM don't come sue me because um, uh, the reasons for which I'll get to in a moment. But basically, uh, the impression in the field is that XM changed their channel lineup, and XM, of course. Like Sirius, uh, and the two of them are, are about to merge or going to merge, uh, XM has a wide range of channels mm-hmm. devoted to different audio programming. Classic rock, um, right. uh, smooth jazz, NPR, uh, even even uh, um, Fox News. Um, and um, somehow, for some reason here over the holidays or first of the year, they changed their channel lineup. Well, the Garmin uh, products that are designed to receive XM uh, uh, audio, XM radio, I should say, XM well, XM transmissions, whether it's data link or uh, or audio, mm-hmm. um, some of the uh, receiving equipment uh, apparently, and this is what I've heard. I'm not saying this is is gospel, is not totally conforming in the way that XM would like it to be. I see. So there's a uh, a, a body of in 396 is affected. I understand uh, um, the 396 and the 496 are affected. The 696 is not. Uh, there are perhaps some built-in installations uh, of Garmin equipment feeding a 430 or a 530 or something like that that are affected. Um, but there's just you know some some hardware incompatibilities, if you will, with the XM service, and that is. Again, according to what I've heard, what the street is telling me, uh, what's going on here. The, the, the problems apparently are resolved as we record this episode. Uh, what and when and, and how and, and who will pay for a long-term fix is anybody's guess. Do, just out of curiosity, was, was this... Was it on the first, or was it by any chance on the thirty-first? Do you happen to it know? It could have cropped up on the thirty-first. Keep because in you mind, heard this story about this is not an aviation story, but Microsoft's Zune music player uh-huh. had a major meltdown um, on the thirty-first because the thirty-first was the th- because it because two thousand eight was a leap year. The thirty-first uh-huh. was the three hundred sixty-sixth day of the year. And this was a year that apparently this is one of the years that's not part of the regular formula for calculating a leap year or something like that. And, well, plus, and it, there was a they, bug they working in the, the year by a whole second too. Yeah, and so the so the Zoom players kind of crashed and burned uh, at at twelve oh one on the thirty first. Like every single one of them suddenly stopped. Anyways, I'm a Macintosh guy, so uh, only, I get only a little Microsoft bit of, could come up with that, right? I get a little bit of pleasure from this. Anyways, it's yeah, not an aviation yeah. story. But, here's, but here's I wondered the, if it was related. It was a weird leap year. Yeah. Time you know, year, um, yeah. and you can imagine that there could be those kind of leap year bugs lurking in their software as well. Maybe it's not related. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't Sounds know. Sounds like it's a Sadie Hawkins Day problem. Here, here's here's the problem though with this, is that, uh, and I'm gonna I'm, I'm scripting a little editorial for my uh, uh, my next issue of Aviation Safety on this topic. But uh, um, when Garmin and XM you know, put together this this hardware, software, and, and uh, uh, um, um, programming solution to get um, weather, real-time weather information into cockpits and, and into boats and into cars and, mm-hmm. and trucks and, and all, of the, all of the various different uh, uh, purposes that this weather information can be used for. Um, they really did a great thing. 
uh, it was it's a very useful product. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it very much enhanced the utility of our aircraft of, of other vehicles. Um, I would go so far as to say that it's been a, a, a good safety feature. Uh, it's certainly no one should be depending on this to, to make a go or no go decision. But at the same time, um, they can use it as a yet one more piece of information on which to make an intelligent decision. Um, people like it or not, uh, and Garmin and, and XM like it or not, uh, people have come to depend on this mm-hmm. uh, because it has been reliable. It has been more or less accurate. Um, <clears throat> And when it disappears, people get annoyed. I bet. And Garmin and XM have a little bit of a problem here, kind of like Tylenol did back in in '83, uh, when uh, 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 they've got a, uh, a public relations problem here because they did not acknowledge that they had a problem, and they were telling people, um, "There's no problem on our end; it's your hardware." Uh, that's not the right response. Um, the problem is, you know, they created this thing. Um, they they may not have wanted it to become what it has become, but it has become what it has become. And they need to uh, recognize that and take some responsibility and be a lot more forthcoming with information regarding the network status Uh to the to the extent of even putting a, a some kind of a notice on the box itself, or entering into the NOTAM system with the FAA, or or putting notices on their website or something, so that people are not um, wondering, spending a lot of time and energy wondering about whether their hardware is broken, if they're doing it right, or or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's that's going to be a well, little bit more of a rant, and, 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 and good uh, for, for you, man. Good good for you. But you know, there's a there's a, almost a knee jerk reaction on corporations to say, "Wow, we don't we we don't see a problem," and not to be open to the input. Sure. From what I'm sure is large numbers of their customers over the uh, first couple of days, asking the whiskey tango foxtrot question, uh, right. and to just kind of automatically react, you know, people, longtime listeners know that uh, Dave went through a spell here where his internet connection wasn't all that good, and for a long time I tried to find a problem in my own system. Right. Well, it turned out to be a problem in my own system, but it per- was a, a problem brought on by a change in how my ISP right. fed information through the wire to me that made the old modem no longer functional. And once I did call them, they were Johnny on the spot and jumped up and said, wow, well, you know, the problem is uh, we changed the service. We sent you a notice. It was at the bottom of a stack of mail that uh, I had browsed through and thought that it was erroneously thought that it was a pitch to sell me more than I needed. When actually it was a pitch to just tell me there's a change coming and you're going to need to change something. So, uh, you know, knee-jerk reactions uh, that say, oh, gee, it's not us, they're not helpful. Uh, Reactions that say, we hear what you're saying, we'll look into it and get back to you. And and, uh, stacking it up, uh, once you start to hear a few dozen or a few score or a few hundred people saying, uh, why isn't my weather coming through, Uh, you know, you should be at a few dozen 
starting to backtrack and say, we don't know what the problem is, but we'll find out. Yeah. And, and, and good for we you, will Jeff. let you know. We will let you know. The, the problem is that um, um, this has kind of taken on a life of its own. It's become perhaps more successful than either Garmin or XM uh, thought that it would be. Mm. And people have come to depend upon it more than perhaps Garmin and XM would want them to. Um, we all want the world to be different in some ways, but the reality is the reality. And the sooner Garmin and XM realize that they have a little bit more responsibility here um, to the users, to the to the customers who uh, have have purchased these products and purchased these services, uh, the better off we're all going to be. Yeah. Finally, the FAA ought to get into the act here and 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 do some NOTAM action. The NOTAM system is a whole other topic, but uh, there there needs to be some NOTAM action on some of this stuff too. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, we have two, count them, two, two count them. Uh, off-field landings of the week uh, this week. Uh, and they're kind of related uh, in that they both are uh, Cirrus SR-22s. Uh, I'm actually going to take them in the reverse order that they're on the list. First, we're going to talk about, uh, this has like, got to be embarrassing. This has just got to be embarrassing. This is the Cirrus demo aircraft up in, uh, in uh, where is it, Duluth, Duluth Minnesota. Quick, quick thinking by a Cirrus pilot. Kept three people aboard a small plane safe today. A Cirrus SR-22 made a surprise landing on Highway 61 north of Duluth. Uh, apparently ran into some sort of engine trouble, and uh, the pilot uh, chose to set it down on the highway. And uh, uh, good job. But uh, someone someone uh, uh, asked whether or not did this did they still get the the sale? You know, I mean, you think you think they'd buy the airplane after after there being an engine failure during the demo flight? I don't know. I'm well, sure maybe be just hire the hiring pilot. the pilot. What's that? Yeah, I'm yeah. going to say. Sure be interested in hiring the pilot. Yeah, and uh, this is a. Um, our friend uh, Randy Dufault uh, sent along a note pointing out that he knows this pilot and uh, and and says that this is this is actually part and parcel of him being a good pilot. And uh, it was kind of no surprise to him that this guy managed to coolly and calmly uh, save everybody's life on board this aircraft. So. Uh, a component inside the engine failed, which Ooh. led to the oil leak. I hate it when that happens. Oh, man, it just ruins your whole day, doesn't it? That's right. I think the component inside mention. the engine that failed was the was a, like a con rod that poked a hole in the crankcase. Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah, so, you get uh, a big hole uh, in the case, the oil leaks out pretty quickly. It yeah. do. It do. Yeah. So this pilot uh, had engine troubles and chose to keep flying the uh, Cirrus SR-22. Our other off-field landing of the week is uh, from Patterson, Louisiana, where an SR-22 pilot who had engine troubles uh, chose to pull the lever and uh, and pop the uh, the chute on the aircraft and float to the ground and uh, landed in. Uh, you know, I just always I wouldn't I don't I wouldn't want to land in any way, shape, or form in these these marshes, these bayous, these whatever. Because aren't there like a lot of alligators down there? And, yeah. And other there critters. can be, yeah, there yeah. can be. But uh, there's a picture. Of Usually, this, this time of year, though, they're sunning down in St. Bart's. Oh, I see. There you are. Okay. Um, this is from a story in AeroNews.net. Uh, there's a picture Oops. here that shows the uh, the aircraft with its nose sort of in the bank at the edge of a sort of canal kind of channel kind of thing, and uh, the parachutes kind of strung up over the treetops. 
But uh, so, I mean, once again, good job uh, getting the airplane on the ground safely, getting all your uh, yourself and I don't know if there are passengers here. Were there anybody else? I guess there was no one else on board. Just one. Just one individual. Just one individual. This kind of prompts me to wonder a little bit. I always wonder about this parachute and, and the kind of issues around having this parachute available. I had lunch, and I'm not going to name his name because I'm not sure whether he was speaking for, for publication. But I had lunch with a CFI friend um, the other day who is uh, working with one of his students, one of his advanced students, who just purchased an SR-22. And uh, my CFI friend is gets to go to, CS, uh, gets to, go to SR-22 school with him. And uh, so they were off flying the, uh, their simulator. And uh, I and I was asking him about the whole, you know, what does the parachute mean to you? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Does it make pilots, are pilots, you know, for example, this guy who pulled the chute and floated down into the bayou, should he have tried harder to land, or was that okay? You know, what's the decision-making process here? We got the uh, guy, I, we got the demo yeah, pilot I'm, in Duluth I'm, who good. chose to land. We got this guy who chose to pop the chute. Um, I, it's interesting. He, my my CFI friend was telling me that one of the exercises that they put them through in the simulator, um, he didn't know at the time, but the exercise was designed to get the pilot to the point where they should pop the chute. And he kept dragging his feet. He didn't want to pop the chute. He kept saying, "Well, I'll try this. Well, I'll try that. I'll, you know." And the and the uh, you know kind of the uh, Cirrus instructor said, "You know, well, now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do?" And the goal the the goal was to get him to the point where he realized now's the time to pull the lever or push the button or however it is you. Well, that's 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 an excellent idea because yeah, uh, among older, bolder pilots in our population, uh, we had a huge level of debate back in the early 90s about the wisdom of putting a parachute in an airplane. And, and, uh, and when to pull it. And when to pull it. Well, I had some very high time, very knowledgeable, very experienced pilots tell me in no uncertain terms that there was no circumstance in their imagination that would cause them to, quote, surrender control right. to a parachute. And one of these debates was night IFR around thunderstorms near uh, Taos, New Mexico. And I'm saying, so you would attempt, if we lost both engines here and you had a parachute option, you would attempt to land at night IMC in mountainous terrain rather than pull a, a parachute that would let you down at a survivable rate. You can't see. There's no level terrain. You would prefer to fly to your death rather than pull a handle because he had just told me a few minutes earlier how if he was to be the customer for one of these airplanes which at the time was the SR-20 there was no 22 yet that the first thing he would do was throw that parachute out have it taken out and the rocket taken out and get back the 60 pounds of useful load Mm -hmm. Uh, well for one thing you just you know you just uh, uh, neutralize the type certificate type certificate depends on that so them putting that training exercise into there is, is, is another mark of the wisdom of the folks at Cirrus Design. Mm-hmm. Second, I can, having flown with parachutes on hang gliders and parachutes on ultralights dating back to 1978, can come up very quickly they, with they quite a number of scenarios. We had hand-deployed parachutes for hang gliders in 1978. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that, you know, the parachute hadn't been invented yeah. Oh no! I just ask any paratrooper from World War II. You should know you were there. I'm uh, 
David, did you ever have occasion to pull the chute while you were flying one of these aircraft? I have not. I have not, but I have flown simulators that allowed me to deploy my parachute system in a practice environment, and I did that a couple of times a year when it was time to check and repack my emergency parachute. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, having done the jumping out of a perfectly good airplane thing, my attitude toward parachute was a little bit different than some of my friends. Right. And having an opportunity, an option, to actually practice this with a hang glider flying down a guy wire so that I could get a feel for how difficult it was to pull it out of the bag, the strength necessary to throw it, the time delay that was involved in a hand-deployed system uh, would be useful should I, in real life, a couple of years later, uh, systems came along with uh, spring-deployed pilot chutes then ones that fired a uh, ballistic charge and a monkey's fist, and then finally, uh, oh, I guess around, I want to get this straight here, probably around 1983, 84, we started to get the rocket-deployed systems that dominate the market today, not just from BRS, but a couple of other companies. Uh, And the rocket systems have become the gold standard, both for hang gliders and ultralights, LSAs and certificated airplanes like the uh, Cirrus airplane. But I can think of any number of scenarios in which me trying to land the airplane is going to be the true mark of a man not interested in surviving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another thing interesting that I learned from, from this CFI friend um, who was taking the SR-22 training, I didn't realize that you had to pop the chute while the aircraft is still under control. I somehow yeah. had it in my head that you could get yourself jammed up and just, you know, in a spin, pull the lever. Well, and apparently you're not. It's flying out of control. It, it is a spin recovery device. Well, yes. Is it really? Because that's what he was telling me. That, yeah. As a matter of fact, he was telling me that one of the tougher parts about even using the chute was that you're not supposed to deploy it above, I think he said, 129. I don't know if it was miles an hour or not. That's correct. It'll, it'll 129 just, knots. Yeah. And he said, he said it was a little bit of a challenge. You know, again, back in the simulator exercise, it was a little bit of a challenge to get the airplane slow enough so that you could pull the lever. Um but, if, but, you're in a, if you're in a spin, you're not going to be going as fast as that. Oh, I suppose that's uh, true. Okay. That's true. Um, but, uh, but yeah. You know, if, you, if, you've, if you've put the nose down, and there was an episode, it was a year or two ago, there was a 22 that uh, pilot lost control and did a lawn dart uh, somewhere, and um, uh, he had pulled the chute, and it shredded. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. Uh, it, it wasn't going to support the airplane. I don't know what was left of it, but the the guy had pulled, you know, it was like, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try the other thing. Pulled the chute, still did the lawn dart. So. Yeah. yeah. I, I should say that my CFI friend um, was, actually likes the chute, um, for what it's worth. Um, he said even though he's a highly experienced, high-time pilot, um, he found it very, very comforting that it was there to, you know, in under certain, like David described, you know, when you get yourself in a bad situation where, you know, it's going to be really dangerous to try and land. Um, he had the well, option of, of pulling. Or impossible to land. Or impossible to well, land. Well, and, yeah. and, and to close out the, 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 the comparison between these two scenarios, we had a factory demonstration pilot, uh, very hot time, very comfortable with the airplane, uh, in a situation where he had a big strip of pavement in front of him, 
versus a uh, an owner who is relatively new to the airplane, regardless of their time and their experience in the airplane, was over a piece of terrain for which there was no strip of concrete, no patch of clearing, uh, you know, marsh, wet, big trees, and a canal. Now, given, you know, the difference between those two situations, uh, putting myself in them, I'm very apt to do what the demonstration pilot did under the same circumstances, and that's try to land the puppy on the highway. Uh, putting myself in the situation of the gentleman uh, in a parish over Louisiana, I'm damn well reaching for the handle. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it depends a great deal on the, the immediate circumstances. And, Jack, I think you were earlier on in this conversation about to ask the question, uh, would you have done that? And, and I don't think Dave or I would second guess uh, the pilot. Absolutely not. Uh, Absolutely not. Give, given the... Uh, uh, we we weren't there. Yeah. The bottom line is we weren't there. Would I pull the shooter? Would I try to fly the airplane out of the situation? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends on the situation. Yeah. Well, congratulations to both these pilots for yeah, getting exactly. absolutely themselves, and, and especially for for being around to talk about it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole point. That's right. So this uh, Denver incident, incident, not the right word, but, uh, where the <laughs> no, uh, seven this is an accident, accident, this excuse me, accident. where the 737 uh, trying to take off veered off the runway and skidded to a halt and got in big trouble and caught fire and so forth and so on, just gets interestinger and interestinger. Yeah, um, the NTSB this week uh, put out a, a summary as, as they so often do. I'm going to see here. They, they, they send it out via email, but then, then they don't put it on their website. Um, and I'm going to see if while we're talking here, if I can go find it, but, uh, and it's not on my local email here. It's at the office. Um, but, um, basically they've, you know, pulled all the recorders. They've interviewed the pilot and the co-pilot, um, done a whole bunch of stuff here. Uh, interesting uh, uh, paragraph buried in this story. We're looking at a story from the Denver Post um, on on DenverPost.com. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see where it is. Let's see. Ah, and this is Bill English, who's the NTSB investigator. I, I've talked with Bill before. He's 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 top flight guy. One of the longer <laughs> serving uh, NTSB investigators. Quote from this story: English said his team of a dozen investigators will look into the possibility of an, quote, uncommanded rudder movement, unquote, mm-hmm. in which the tail rudder turns the plane without a command from the cockpit. Such a situation caused the crash of a U.S. Air Boeing 737 in Pittsburgh in 1994, he said. He said this aircraft, Boeing 737-500, is a newer model with a rudder modified to make such an incident, quote, less likely, yeah. unquote. Well, we knew um, this two weeks ago. We talked about this, yeah, two weeks ago about this very scenario. They need to put us on and, the go team, and uh, you know, well, or you know, kickbacks or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now that is interesting. I actually, there were two other things I took out of this that I thought were pretty interesting. One was that they have determined that one of the engine. That, I'm sorry, that there was no internal rotational damage on one of these jets. In other words, well, it's that. And, and yeah, go ahead. I, I will admit that this is not definitive, but what it suggests maybe was that the 
alleged that the turbines weren't spinning at the time this crash was happening. That is what that would suggest. Now, th- I did find while we were talking here, the um, uh, this is uh, dated January 7, a uh, press release from the NTSB, NTSB issues update on Continental 737 accident in Denver. Um, physical inspection of the engines and information from the flight data recorder has not indicated any evidence of pre-impact malfunctions with either engine. The FDR data shows that number one engine power was reduced before that of number two engine during the accident sequence. Uh, An examination, examination of the engine indicates that this reduction is consistent with snow and earth ingestion as the airplane departed the runway. Um, the FDR data also shows that both engines were commanded into reverse thrust following rejection of the takeoff by the flight crew, which occurred after the aircraft had already left the runway. Oh, that part I hadn't heard. But yeah, what this is saying is that the flight crew um, did not, A, reject the takeoff, or B, command reverse thrust until the aircraft had already departed the side of the runway. Well, Um, that that changes the, the rosy scenarios in so many ways. It does. And, and that's interesting. And okay, so you're, I'm sorry, you're reading from directly from what, an NTSB press release? NTSB press release, okay. January 7 of this year. Wind at the time, or just before takeoff, was 270 degrees at 27 knots. Um, this was... Um, what was the runway? Run yeah. Lights? yeah. Uh, left side of runway three four right, so it had a seventy degree cross, twenty seven knots. For seven three, that's I mean I can do that in, in my debonair. Yeah. That's that's not uh, a crisis crisis level stuff. You can do you can do twenty seven gusting thirty plus. I, I've done thirty steady uh, with the debonair at Manassas. Thirty, 30 steady is a different. Well, breed oh, no, I'm sorry. It was twenty gust thirty. At Manassas that day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the 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 Denver Post article. I was actually happy about it. Don't get me wrong, but I mean we we survived. For what yeah. it's worth, the Denver Post uh, article presents the um the the rejected flight thing, the rejected takeoff thing, a little differently. They got a little bit of that wrong, and I I don't know. Um, this was published. This Denver Post article was published the day before the NTSB release. So yeah. I kind of wonder which. Uh, I kind of wonder if maybe the uh, NTSB release was put out in response to the Denver Post article. Hmm, maybe. Okay. But uh, for what it's just uh, for just for the listeners' sake, the, the Denver Post article says that, uh, and, and it's actually sort of indirectly quoting English. Um, says English confirmed that the cockpit voice recorder details the captain who was flying the plane rejecting the, rejecting the takeoff partway down the runway, and as he tried to stop the aircraft, it veered off the runway. But now you're saying the NTSB explicitly says differently than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I, you know, obviously I can't explain that. Uh, I can't explain the discrepancy in the Denver Post article. Um, the, the, the the NTSB material is is checked over a lot more thoroughly before it goes out. Um, but uh, well, this one's going to be very interesting. Yeah, the movie's um, going to be interesting, isn't it? <laughs> the movie, the movie, yeah. Uh, um, any any indication aircraft? that they've interviewed the captain yet? Yeah, they have. Oh, yeah, uh, they, they have. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the yeah. Lead, well, one, of the, one of the lead graphs here on the NTSB, the fifth graph down, both members of a flight crew have been interviewed. They have, okay. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, and this, like we talked about before, could well turn out to be one of those uh, rare but unsettling instances where a uh, gremlin of previously unidentified type manifests itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to be open to that possibility. And the investigators, one of the beauties of the NTSB process is that they go through things so methodically and confirm things that they can actually confirm that happened and then start whittling their way through the scenarios of what they can't initially confirm. Uh, Because as a wonderful fiction character once said, once you eliminate all the possibilities of what could have happened, what remains, however unlikely, uh, however impossible it might seem, is what must have happened. Yeah. Here's yeah. another little tidbit, though, here from this, this NTSB statement. Um, I'll just read this paragraph real quickly. Both pilots remarked that all appeared normal until the aircraft began to deviate from the runway center line. The captain noted that the airplane suddenly diverged to the left and attempts to correct the deviation with the rudder were unsuccessful. He stated that he briefly attempted to return the aircraft to the center line by using the tiller to manipulate the steering of the nose gear, but was unable to keep the aircraft on the runway. Bumping and rattling sounds audible on the cockpit voice recorder have been time-correlated with the flight data recorder and were found to have occurred as the airplane exited the runway Mm -hmm. and traveled through the grassy areas adjacent to the runway. The aircraft reached a maximum speed of 119 knots and was traveling at 89 knots when the CVR and FDR stopped recording. Hey, I thought that's not supposed to... I guess the power went out, huh? Well, yeah, something or you know something got broken. Um, I don't know. Um, it was still a good ways from being stopped. Yeah, it was a long ways from being stopped. They'd already lost thirty knots. Yeah, uh, from from the maximum maximum velocity, and they were well uh, off the, the runway already. Yeah, and they were they were off the runway. I kind of wonder. I, I, you know, uh, I wasn't there, and I don't want to second guess a seven three captain, but uh, kind of wonder what took him so long to reject the takeoff. Well, and the thing is, if uh, I just did some stuff that involved a presentation Clay Lacey gave at Stand Down recent, uh, last fall, and one of the things that he mentioned as a causative factor in some uh, runway departure accidents with business jets is the uh, cruise attempt to depend on nose wheel steering uh, long after the nose wheel has gotten too light or Uh at a point when they should still be using the rudder because using the nose wheel steering is going to result in them being really candid because of a crosswind. So, uh, you know, there's a lot yet to find out about this, but uh, uh, just based on what we're hearing from the NTSB and, and and some of the physical evidence that they've reported, there definitely seems to be something here that didn't happen according to usual practice. Yeah, yeah. And it's I'm a, not talking about the fact that it was an accident. Yeah. A fascinating mystery. We're going to keep following it and talking about it. It's uh, it's pretty cool. And can I rant now? Uh, oh, that's right. You wanted to oh, rant. You had a rant. That's okay, right. everybody, everybody right. quiet down now. Now, go ahead. Back a few weeks ago, when uh, the automobile companies went hat in hand to Washington looking for loan money to help them stay alive. 
they got their heads handed to them for going to Washington in three different business jets. And subsequent to that, some of the proposals that came out of Congress uh, included language that insisted that they get rid of their business jets. They not ever use business jets. Uh, it was the depth of insanity on the part of some members of Congress to treat these tools as some kind of uh, uh, unnecessary luxury when, in fact, for most small airplane or small companies that use these airplanes, they are an absolute necessity. So today, January 9th, the House Financial Services Committee released a proposal to reauthorize the Troubled Assets Relief Program. That's the $700 billion bailout bill that was passed months ago before the automakers came along. And that that new version of the Troubled Assets Relief Program, or TARP, includes a business aircraft divestiture provision. That is, it says that the companies that are going to take money on this program have to get rid of any business jets, can't use any business jets. And it's absolutely the most insane thing to come out of Congress this week. If these uh, people were any bigger tools, they'd be in aisle 10 at Home Depot. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. and, and, and to quote a friend, uh, a friend and, and a fellow I admire much, uh, Pete Bunce, who's the head of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, targeting our industry is unacceptable and counterproductive response to our nation's economic situation. If passed, this provision will have an adverse impact on our industry jeopardize high-paying manufacturing jobs. Uh, it's completely inappropriate at a time when GA manufacturers are already suffering from a weak economy. It's inappropriate at a time when, when companies are trying to be as efficient and economic as they can, and their private airplanes are usually almost always the most efficient and economic way for them to do business. Because in case members of Congress haven't noticed, when they were flying on private airplanes, only 500 airports in this country are served by the airlines. That leaves over 4,500 communities with airports that are not served by the airlines. Now, members of Congress don't allow themselves to be stuck with the airlines and then having to drive hours and hours to get to their final destination. So I suggest that they wake up get their heads out of the dark nether regions of their buttocks and realize that this is not a way to help rescue the economy or put America back on a better business footing. And I'm going to end my rant by asking that our listeners who think that there's some merit in what I say and what Gamma says and what these companies believe who use private airplanes like the ones we own and fly, because all of these guys aren't flying business jets, and most of the time, 85% of the time, the people in the back of a business jet or a business turboprop are rank-and-file engineers, technicians, and mechanics, not the CFOs and the CEOs and the chairman, uh, going to small communities where there's machines that need repairing, computers that need replacing, assembly lines that need updating. I suggest that you contact your members of the House and tell them, that this is a stupid idea that does more harm than it does good. And that's the end of my rant. Okay. David got his NBAA Kool-Aid glass refilled today. Yeah, I guess so. No, I agree <laughs> no, with you. No, no, I, I completely no, agree. I, I agree. I agree also. 
I agree I, with I you as well. So. You know, and just um, when I was going to just when I was going to introduce a story where I thought there was some 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 promising news coming out of the federal level, um, uh, we have that. Well, I, th- I think there happening. is some if you're going to talk about the TSA. Thing. I am. Uh, so uh, the first of these uh, uh, he- public hearings uh, regarding the uh, TSA uh, LASP large, large, large aircraft, aircraft security program. Security for- program. The first of the public hearings. Uh, I think the first, but one of the of the series of public hearings. Actually, held, two this week was held, and um, and. And hallelujah, a huge crowd of people in opposition to the new regulations and new procedures showed up and uh, and made a very very strong case by all reports. Uh, and uh, it's just very gratifying that, uh, that 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 this message was was presented so forcefully and so uh, you know. Yeah. Well, here's the here's the problem though. Yeah. This message has been presented forcefully by any by a huge number of people. Uh, for a very long time. Yeah, but and I like TSA continues to do whatever the freak it wants to do. Right, but I like that the that this has gotten into the mainstream media, so that regular people now are reading good. about how how foolish this is, and they're they're getting you know this side instead of the uh, the airline industry. Oh yeah, you don't buy the it's the airline industry, but you're you know you're not getting the TSA side of the story exclusively now, um, and so whether or not TSA pays attention to this feedback. Uh, it, I'm gratified that the mainstream media is telling this story about how all these people stepped up and said how foolish this is. Not simply that it will hurt their business, but it, that it's just not a good way to do the... Uh, it, it is stupid. Yeah. It is It is stupid. Here, here, here's the problem with it. And the fundamental issue is the airlines carry people they don't know. And TSA scanning uh, is designed to screen for objects. Okay, not intent and not people. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's designed to screen uh, for objects. The private aircraft, everybody knows everybody. Yeah, and the only way that you can prevent—I mean, the, the only the only real way you can prevent someone from commandeering one of these aircraft—is to screen them for intent, and that requires like you know things like police work. Law enforcement, as opposed well, it, to it actually turn, requires some turn, kind of uh, mental capacities that uh, only show up in fiction shows. Here's the problem, though: is it, we spend so much time and energy and resources and money and everything else um, trying to basically uh, prevent items from getting on objects from getting on aircraft, and we're not doing anything uh, useful anyway. Yeah, to screen against the intent of people getting on these airplanes, you know the the vast. Okay, we got you got your nail clippers, we got your bic lighters, we got your uh, your your uh, bottle of uh, Avion, and who gives a f- uh, crap? Thank I you. Mean, fig. Who gives a fig? Well, here's yeah. the, here, here's to take Jeb's point a little bit farther. Uh, under the TSA's totally stupid uh, aspirations. Uh, Private pilots like us flying aircraft of 12.5, and that takes in a lot of small airplanes, folks. CJ3s, King Air 350s, Learjet 45, Learjet 40XR. Uh, these are not large airplanes, kiddies. 
These are not large airplanes by any stretch of the imagination, except a regulatory demarcation that happens to occur uh, coincidentally in the FAA. For FAA, for FAA operational and regulatory reasons, and for no other reasons. No other reason. But the uh, TSA's totally stupid approach would prevent us from carrying something as necessary as a survival kit within reach where we need it. Yeah. Yeah, and we we've yeah. gone down this road. We've talked, told you know, we've we've made these points a number of times in the past. Well, and uh, I just I, think it's, I had a bit of encouraging. Uh, I I heard something encouraging in a conversation that I had earlier today with a guy by the name of Craig Fuller. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, Let's now tell us who he is, Dave. Well. And that's a segue you were looking for, right? No, I actually uh, wanted I wanted to make one other Yeah, okay, let's oh, go talk please, about this. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm, I just just finished the thought. That's my point here is I'm really happy that this this story that the 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 huge opposition to this to this uh, uh these measures um are getting reported in the mainstream media. Um for me the money quote from this little piece or one of the money quotes was from a gentleman who is a chief pilot for a uh, a company that has a, a flight operation obviously. He says uh the imposition of this proposed regulation will, in fact, result in the terrorists' objectives of crippling our free society and profoundly altering our democratic way of life. Uh, yeah, I think that is on the money. Yeah. Anyways, let's yeah, let's do move on because you um, and I don't want to ask you because you did this for one of your one of your publications that you write for, but you uh, had an interview with uh, Craig Fuller, the uh, the new uh, head guy at AOPA. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, um, first of all, who, who are you writing this for? What, where is this going to appear? Well, this is uh, for a, a what we call a 10 questions interview. It will uh-huh. be in the February issue of World Aircraft Sales Magazine, which you will find at virtually every bloody FBO in the country mm-hmm. uh, gets multiple copies of this. Okay. Uh, and they're there to be stolen. They want you to steal them. If you find one, take it, read it. You can also find it online at www.fbuyer.com. Click on the World Aircraft Sales link. Uh, spent about 50 minutes on the phone with Mr. Fuller. Yeah, what was your impression? Uh, well, first off, my impression is that uh, this guy's one of us. Uh-huh. I mean, more so than the average association executive. In what uh, way? What, what do you mean by that? Well, he started flying at 16. He started flying at 15, soloed at 16, got his license at 17. Uh, when he graduated from college and got into the work world, he bought a, uh, a, a Cessna 172 Cutlass RG that he flew for many, many years, uh, both business and personal. Uh, in 2003, after having sold the Cutlass RG in the 90s, he came here to Wichita and picked up a spanking new 2003 A36 Bonanza that he has been flying both business and pleasure in, to the tune, he told me, of 200 to 220 hours a year. Uh, it happens that most of his career has been spent in communications for large businesses or trade associations and eight years on the White House staff, I believe working for uh, then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been the head of a major trade association uh, and he's now the head of a major pilots association. Uh, found him very congenial 
very conversational, very anxious to do his job. Uh, and the grapevine and, and underground stuff that I'd picked up from some of my friends at AOPA uh, came across as accurate, that he's a different breed of cat than the uh, uh, very admired, very uh, uh, hardworking Phil Boyer, who Mr. Fuller replaced. Uh, and one of my questions in the 10 questions to Mr. Fuller uh, involved the TSA's large aircraft security program. And, of course, they had their uh, eastern northeastern rep represent AOPA at the uh, meeting that was in New York a couple of days ago. And I believe they had another rep at the one that was outside or there in Atlanta uh, mm-hmm. yesterday. Uh, but one of the things that he mentioned struck me as uh, most encouraging was the fact that we're about to have a changeover in the head of the Department of Homeland Security from a person who spent uh, most of their career in law enforcement and as a prosecutor to someone whose career is more broad-based, that is, a governor, a uh, sitting governor who has a broader view of things and will, he thinks, possibly be a little more uh, – open-minded on it and in fact since this is only a proposal at this point there's every opportunity for the department of homeland security and the transportation security administration to listen to the input to form the air uh, the aviation or the uh, rulemaking committee that's been suggested in both of the meetings so far and dial this puppy back and come out with a new nprm in a few months to a year that actually reflects some of the realities that they'd been informed of. But Mr. Fuller did uh, very pointedly say he was quite disappointed that the Bush administration came up with this proposal so late in the term and then tried to rush it through by having a uh, December cutoff for the comments originally uh, and a, a proposal that recognizes none of the differences uh, in general aviation from commercial carriage, like the fact that we know who we fly with. Right. And, uh, and uh, after so many months of them assuring AOPA and NBAA and NATA and EAA that, yes, we're, we're hearing what you're saying and we recognize that there's differences and we know that one size doesn't fit all and what's appropriate for the commercial airlines isn't appropriate for GA – and then they drop this proposal on us in October that seems to recognize none of those differences. Right. So, so you liked some, him? I liked him. Uh, I found him very engaging, uh, very personable, and uh, very excited about the job that he's got and the opportunity he has to do some new things. Uh, I'm not going to get into details. I'll leave that for when the magazine article hits print in about yeah. three weeks. Yeah, we should but, all look uh, for that. and. Uh Yes, I encourage people to look it up because uh, uh, I know he's been interviewed by others and he's been on podcasts and so forth. Uh, But one of the things that I try to do is deliberately carve a new path through questions that I haven't seen asked before. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think we accomplished here today. So uh, uh, I uh, was encouraged by some of the things he said. He's definitely going to be a different breed of cat than Phil Boyer. Uh, and I think that's going to be to the benefit of the association and uh, to the benefit of general aviation at large. And one of the questions that you'll see uh, dealt with in there is uh, him explaining to the non-member some reasons why they should become a member. 
And I'm going to back that up by making a, you know, an unsolicited, unpaid uh, pitch that if you don't belong to AOPA, you're missing out on some benefits and you're also missing out on an opportunity to help support the community you belong yeah. to. I would agree with that. Uh, of course, there, there's only about three people out there. Three people out there who are eligible to be AOPA members who aren't. Yeah, it's at this stage. They have pretty good penetration. Well, we should all. Everyone should go out and look for World Air- Aircraft Sales Magazine at your FBO. Uh, if they don't have it hanging out there, then you should get them to uh, track them down and call them and tell them that uh, that you want to read this the writings of that excellent Dave Higdon so that. Uh, oh, they'll definitely Higdon, put an FBO Higdon. on we the list. Four Higdon. <laughs> I never hear that. Uh, but if it's not at your local FBO, they'll definitely put your local FBO on the list. There you your go. local FBO there lets you go. them know. Um, we need to wrap this thing up, but quickly, um, uh, President Bush has appointed a new acting FAA administrator. Is this just politics? Is this just, just bureaucracy? What's going on here? It's mostly just bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, was there some sort of sunset deadline on, on uh, Stargell's uh, uh, acting you know, yeah, position? there is a there is a limit on acting positions if they're not confirmed. Uh, very often, what happens is the acting appointment is allowed to expire, and then a person reappointed, which violates the spirit but not the letter of the uh, of the uh, regulations involving yeah. that. In this case, I think Mr. Sturgill is uh, ready to move on and try to find his next career because he clearly was not going to be a- confirmed. Yep. Uh, that didn't happen during his uh, acting appointment, and it was, he was not apt to be appointed uh, administrator by the incoming administration. So I think this just gives him a chance to move on and start looking for full-time employment. And uh, Ms. Osmus, who is already on the FAA staff, moves up and takes on the job until uh, uh, President-elect Obama names the, re- the uh, person that we hope will be confirmed for the full five years. Yeah, Jeb, does that make sense to you? Absolutely, it does. Okay. Um, I'm trying to recall, Dave, you probably know off the top of your head, was Sturgill ever formally nominated? Yes. Yeah, I believe he was. Yes, he was formally nominated. I thought so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Shout-outs. David, tell us about flying pets. (laughs) Well, uh, there there have been organizations uh, to fly pets, in the past, uh, there's a bird rescue. I was even recruited myself once some years ago to fly some rare birds to a place where they could have a home. Uh, this is a less formal outfit called uh, uh, Pilots and Paws. And now the, there's uh, something we can throw out of an airplane. That's oh, man. Oh, man. No, no, don't, don't, I, don't. I, 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 oh, that, that's kidding. good. That, that, that'll, get, that'll get us some fur flying. Yeah, we'll uh, get mail now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so but, no, this uh, is a good the, cause. The pilots, is- pilots and Paws at Pilots in November, paws.org. Yeah. Uh, they need pilots that will help fly dogs that uh, are on the short list for euthanasia to someplace where they'll be adopted. Uh-huh, okay. And uh, as, a, as the parent or owner of a, of a shelter dog that was on the short list around here, they called them the uh, Lonely Hearts Club dogs. They were down to two weeks of life, and if they weren't adopted, uh, then they were going to be euthanized. And she's been a lovely pet. Mm-hmm. Great company for my wife when my tra- when I travel. So if you got a little time and you're interested in another excuse, as if you needed one, to fly your airplanes, Pilots and Paws is looking for pilots to fly some furry, four-legged, long, 
eared tail wagging pups to some place where they can be adopted by new owners and 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 and, and saved from uh, from a, uh, uh, a death they don't deserve. Yeah, great, Jeb. You got anything? No, no, not tonight. Okay. Well, Dave Higdon, uh, thanks. Oh, thank you, guys. It's as always, it's a blast. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer. You are also a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine, and as we discovered a moment ago, the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, www.avbuyer.com or aea.net or what's that other outfit? Aviation Safety something or other we'll come to that one in a second uh uh presumably also learn a little bit more about you at kitplanes.com and uh, just google your name for for more information about uh, things you've been up to and jeb burnside you are an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine where can people uh, find you on the internet well amazingly enough aviation safety magazine.com there you go that's uh, the one. yeah my personal website is je burnside dot com and occasionally i might be found uh scribbling or uh, doing audio or video on avweb.com there you go oh yeah man you should see his star turn doing 696 oh man oh i shouldn't even said anything Dang man, it. that was fun. I had popcorn, soda pop. Uh, I laughed. It I was cried. only three and a half minutes. Was amazing. What was this now? Was this is what another video on the, on the site. What's yeah, just yeah, tell us quickly did, what it's uh, called, and we'll all go looking it's, for it. It's 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 on the Ev website. It's a it's another six ninety six video. Okay. Uh, talking about some safety features. I see. Of okay. the six ninety six. All right, we'll go looking for that. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. As always, a big thanks to Jeff Scoffrey-Jet Ward for creating our show notes. Also to many of our listeners and particularly to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl for the show opening disclaimer clips that they've been doing. And don't forget that you can visit with us all at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, you can check out the wiki, you can check out the airport restaurants list, and more. And that's at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? I was going to say live longer, go flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. And that's enough talking for tonight. Let's go flying. TTFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.